For all of the mainstream media's coverage of Donald Trump, and it was plentiful, there's not a very deep understanding of the Republican Party under that president, or indeed the forces that led up to his election. In the liberal press, there just has not been that much curiosity about the nuances of the American conservative movement and what historical and political forces are driving it. Its portrayal is often driven by stereotypes and tends to be pretty flat. But my guest on the program today says the history of the American right is actually a rich and complex one with numerous diverse factions vying for dominance. The American right is not one thing, it's many things. Matthew Continetti is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. He's also the author of a new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matthew Continetti joins me today for a history lesson on the American right and how this history can help us to better understand the populist wave now underway in Canada. Matthew Continetti is my guest. That's today on Lean Out. Matthew, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. This book is an incredibly thorough intellectual and political history of the conservative movement. I learned so much about it that can be applied to the moment we're in in Canada, actually, having imported some of America's culture war and experiencing this wave of conservative populism at the moment. The media here tends to be left-leaning. The portrait we have of the American right is pretty flat. My goal for our conversation today is really to complicate that narrative. But before we start pulling threads, I want to talk about what brought you to this project, which has been a long time in the making. You write that it is the job of conservatives to remember. Tell me about your hobby of reading old journalism. (laughs) Well, you know, I started out as a journalist in Washington, D.C., right after graduating from college in 2003. And where I went to college, uh, Columbia University, we had a student paper that I worked on, but there were no journalism classes. So you really had to learn through practice. And I had to carry that manner of instruction to DC when I started here. And so you're kind of thrust into DC as a 22 year old. You don't really know your way around town. It takes a long time to develop sources. But one thing you do have access to is the archives of whatever publication you happen to start out in. And so I would spend a lot of my downtime reading through the back issues of the magazine where I worked, the Weekly Standard, which at that point was about eight years old. So there were eight volumes of issues to read through. And that's basically how I learned my trade. Uh, That's how I learned how to select a story, how stories are structured. I learned different writing styles based on the authors I read there. And I also learned a lot about American history because American history is not really taught at a granular level in high schools. And I was a history major in college, but I focused actually in Europe during college. So I was learning contemporary American history by reading through these back issues of a magazine that began in 1995. And so then I carried that over to other magazines, typically on the center right in America. And so I would I read through the National Review, a much older magazine founded in 1955, or The American Spectator, founded in 1967. I started reading the New Republic magazine, a center-left magazine, when I found its archive available. 
that magazine started in the teens, uh, the 19 teens, but I uh, picked up reading it around in the 1980s and, and then read through there. So it was a hobby that eventually transformed into a, uh, a passion because what I found was that by the time I was in my 30s, the new young people coming to DC, those who were about 10 years and now 20 years younger than me, had no idea that any of this happened where they were coming into D.C. completely fresh, completely blank. For the young people who arrive in D.C. today, history begins in 2016 with Donald Trump's election. There is nothing before, right? And I found <laughs> myself in this role of having to teach them about it, right? And I started teaching in nonprofit programs. I eventually started teaching in, here at, in D.C. at American University. The history of the conservative movement in America, as I had learned it through these journals and then through the books associated with the journals, the book, I would go through, I still do, old magazines and look through the book review sections. And you see the titles of books that people don't remember now, but some of them are very good. And then thanks to the wonders of the internet, you can locate and use copy of these out of print books. So this became my cause and my passion is telling young people about this period in American history, uh, really the Cold War period, post-Cold War period. And the way that I kind of came to that passion was through discovering those back issues in the Weekly Standard, uh, and then using those pieces of old journalism as kind of hooks to hang this larger picture of America and world history uh, over the last you know, 40-some years. Mm -hmm. So interesting. The point that I want to start in history today, you start 100 years ago. I want to start in the early 1990s, just because of our time constraints today. And I want to start with the publication of Dinesh D'Souza's A Liberal Education. You write that in the coming decades, politics will be less about the distribution of wealth and more about hierarchy of values. So set the stage for us. Can you unpack a few of the cultural forces that led to this start of the culture war? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, in many ways, that period in the late 1980s, early 1990s is similar to our own. The Cold War was beginning to wind down. Berlin Wall falls in 1989, in November. Reagan and Gorbachev had already begun negotiations over reducing our nuclear armaments. There's a sense of a thaw in the Cold War. Eventually, the Soviet Union would dissolve in December of 1991. So it was a new world. The way in which the Cold War had structured American and world politics for 40 some years can't be underestimated, right? And this is one thing that I'm always trying to communicate to audiences who may not have been born during this time, may not remember it, they were too young. They have no really idea of how large the Soviet Union loomed in people's minds. But at this point in the late 80s, early 90s, it was beginning to fade away. And so what we had was beginning of a turn inward uh, where conservatives said, well, now that we've defeated our main enemy, the Soviet Union, we have to think about the problems associated with liberalism at home, and especially the problem of liberalism and radicalism in the academy, in the university, which had been a longstanding concern of the American right, but now comes back to the fore with the absence of the Soviet threat. 
And so in 1987, you have the publication of The Closing of the American Mind by the philosopher Alan Bloom, just a very significant, rich work of philosophy as well as kind of educational theory. And then since it was such a surprise success, there were imitators. And one of them was Dinesh D'Souza, who came out with his book, A Liberal Education in the 1991, as you say. This is also around the time where there were a lot of debates about the canon and representation in the great texts of Western civilization. The famous protests led by Jesse Jackson in the late 1980s on the Stanford campus where the protesters cheered, you know, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. They wanted to end the requirement at Stanford for learning about these great texts. <clears throat> and then even at a place like Columbia University where I went, which still has the core curriculum where you read the great books of Western literature and philosophy, there were arguments and continue to be arguments about, well, we need to be more inclusive in the authors that we, that we teach. So this really comes out of this period as well. And uh, what you see with there with D'Souza, I think is, is interesting, was he was always able to somehow straddle the line between an intellectual conservatism that had its roots in publications such as the National Review and the Public Interest Magazine, the National Interest, and a kind of formative, controversialist, almost theatrical form of populist conservatism which he came out of from his roots at Dartmouth University. And a liberal education is really the last book of his where he was more on the intellectual side. Because his next book is called The End of Racism. And in that book, he's almost purposely trying to own the libs, as they say today, right? He's trying to kind of just get in people's faces, provoke them, generate controversy, which would be good for him. And he thinks his, his cause and that's certainly where he continues to be even now. And next, I want to touch on Trump, as we have to. Um, yeah. I, I want to read another quote from you. Trump arrived at a time of dissociation, of unbundling, fracture, disaggregation, and dispersal. The disconnectedness was not only social and cultural, it was also political, a separation of the citizenry from the government founded in their name. So to many in Canada, the election of Donald Trump came as a real shock. Uh, what do you see as like historically, what do you see as the turning point that set the Republican Party on that path? How far do we need to look back to understand the rise of Trump? Well, I, I do begin my book, The Right, in the 1920s. So um, <laughs> I, I have to think you have to look back as far as that, uh, at least, to basically get a sense of a few things. One is that in American politics, there has always been a populist tendency, a populist sentiment that periodically rises and puts up leaders, some of them responsible figures, others irresponsible demagogues. And this goes back, you know, you can, the whiskey rebellion in our history, right? Daniel Shea's rebellion in our history through Andrew Jackson in his presidency, William Jennings Bryan. There's a long hundreds of years of populist tradition in the United States. There's one difference here which is that none of those populists become president. <laughs> Trump is the first of these populist demagogues to actually become elected president. The other thing you have to realize is that the American right is not one thing, it's many things. And many people in Washington, D.C. in particular, felt that, oh, well, we know what conservatism is. 
conservatism is uh, Speaker Paul Ryan. Conservatism is cut taxes, reform entitlements, be strong on defense, and we'll take care of the social issues you know, when we get to them. In fact, conservatism is many different things. And all those positions that I just mentioned are contested within the American right. So the issue set Trump brought to the fore in 2016, which was in many ways repudiation of Paul Ryan's program, had been considered, had been present in the American right. It just had not been at the fore, right? Then the larger thing that played into his nomination was beginning in the late Bush years, the second term of George W. Bush, conservative grassroots voters began to drift away from the conservative elites here in Washington, D.C., where I live and work, and primarily over the issue of immigration. But there was also, I think, lingering dissatisfaction with the war in Iraq. And once the financial crisis occurs in the fall of 2008, a real disgust that the Republicans had colluded in the bailout program. And so after George W. Bush leaves office, Barack Obama arrives, conservatism and the right becomes almost entirely populist, anti-elitist, anti-liberal elite, but also very anti-conservative elite. And this sentiment was not recognized uh, by the politicians running for president in 2016. I think Ted Cruz got some understood part of it. Ben Carson understood part of it, but they were too connected to the Republican establishment or had just flaws as candidates that they weren't able to capitalize on it. And then, of course, Trump was the person who understood this space between conservative voters and conservative elites most intuitively. And he he capitalized on it. That's how he won the nomination. How he won the, the presidency, you know, it's a close run thing. American presidential elections are very close. It's basically like 50 Senate elections. And Senate elections, a few thousand votes can make the difference, right? Between whether you're in the United States Senate or not. Um, and here it was uh, about 30,000 votes, I think, spread over three states that made Donald Trump president. Why? Well, the simplest explanation to me is revealed in a set of poll numbers, and that is Donald Trump was the most unpopular candidate of a major party in the history of the Gallup poll. But he ran against the second most unpopular candidate of a major party in the history of the Gallup poll, Hillary Clinton. And I think that the difference was, do you go with the person that you know, Clinton, and who's not popular? Or do you take a chance on the person who's not popular, who you don't like necessarily, but who at least is new? And I think for enough people, they went with the new, and Donald Trump arrived in the White House. Yeah, I remember reading that line in your book and just thinking, wow, like that is. Yeah, so we definitely need to fix the primary system in the United States. And I don't know how we do it, but we, we need to. 
I want to spend a moment. You you say the American right is, is many things. And I, I want to spend a moment on the moment that we're in right now and the many things that the American is right now. Can you outline the sort of factions that are vying against each other within the American right right now? Sure. Well, I think you have to look at it at a couple of different registers. First is just politically, you know, what's happening in the American right through the lens of the Republican Party, which is the main vehicle of the American right. It's a Trump party now. Trump defined the party. He was president for four years. He continues to lead in all of the polls of preference for 2024. He put his imprint on the Republican Party. So most Republicans, they're running for Congress. They're identifying with President Trump or the Trump agenda. They say that they are America first. Uh, they're going to be very hawkish on the border. They're going to be very leery of foreign entanglements. They're going to want to somehow restore American industry. They don't really know how to do that, but that's what their goal is. And most of all, they want to be on the offensive against the cultural left. They want to fight the cultural left. It doesn't matter if they win, they'd like to win, but they really just want to fight. They need to show spine. That's their major concern. So the Trump Republican, I think, is now the mainstream of the Republican Party. But it's not a majority uh, because there are two other factions in the Republican Party. One is the Reagan Republicans, right? People like me. We're still around. <laughs> you know, we're not in control. We associate ourselves with Ronald Reagan and his legacy and his principles which you know, line up in some cases with the Trump Republicans, but in other cases diverge, right? It definitely attitudinal differences, I think. The Trump Republicans tend to be much more apocalyptic, sometimes tempted by conspiracies. The Reagan Republicans try to be more hopeful about this country, right? And also believe it's not people who are the problem, it's government that's the problem. We focus on government, big government, not the big guy or the little guy or whoever the populists are pointing to as the source of our problems. You can't have a majority without somehow finding uh, modus vivendi between these two groups, the Trump Republicans and the Reagan Republicans. But there is a third group as well. And that is what President Biden, I think, quite helpfully called the ultra mega Republicans. And these are the figures who are further than Trump. They love Trump, but they're willing to go even further than Trump. And so you think of a candidate such as uh, Kathy Barnett, okay? She ran for Senate in Pennsylvania. She ran against a Reagan Republican, uh, Dave McCormick, who was trying to style himself a MAGA Republican to show you where the party is, against Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, the Trump-endorsed Republican. But she starts having a surge late in the day because she is ultra mega. She's more mega than Oz. She's like, I was there before Oz. I support President Trump. But sometimes, you know what? The base was there before President Trump, right? Uh, and the ultra mega tend to definitely believe in the stop the steal conspiracy about the 2020 election. They tend to also believe the conspiracies surrounding the vaccine. And so they tend to be more conspiratorial even more apocalyptic than the Trump Republicans. But you also need their votes. So that's how kind of the Republican Party is split between these three groups. Intellectually, which we can talk about in a moment, but it's even more of a mess. But I'll stop there. And if you have any questions about the GOP, we can 
<laughs> I'm very curious about the new right and how they fit into all of this. I've been reading a lot on that. I see some resonances between the new right in the States and what's emerging in the uh, Canadian populist trucker movement. So the anti-elitism, the nationalism, anti-globalization sentiment, this conviction that the country is in decline, a distrust in institutions, experts, the belief in a deep state bureaucracy, but also this realignment of left and right in that it is pro-labor, pro-working class, anti-establishment conservatism, and anti-corporate, and and yet still in defense of organized religion, family, community. How do we understand this new right? Where does it come from? What are its guiding principles? Sure. So this is why I tend to separate the registers between the political and the intellectual, because in, in truth, when you look at the Republican Party today, I, I don't think Donald Trump is guided by any you know, philosophical principles that he draws from the new right. In many ways, the new right is trying to understand what's happening in politics and impose a theory upon it retroactively. And so, like you mentioned, the, the anti-corporate but pro-labor, right? I don't think the Republican Party is pro-labor. I'm sorry. There may be one or two politicians who are uh, making rhetoric about how we need to support unions as a Republican Party. But no, you're right to say that the Republican Party is now taking an anti-corporate stance, not because of economics, because of the culture wars, because the corporations in the United States have really leaned in on social and cultural agenda associated with the progressive left in this country. And so now the Republican Party is fighting the corporations on the cultural level not on the economic level. So I think sometimes this new, you know, multiracial working class coalition that Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley have talked about since 2020 is exaggerated, right? However, at the intellectual level, people are thinking a lot about these things. They're talking a lot about these things. When we consider this new right, the way to think about it is there are a few groups. The main group is the national conservatives. These are associated with an Israeli philosopher named Yoram Hazoni, um, the former president of the think tank where I work, the American Enterprise Institute, a man named Christopher DeMuth. He and Hazoni organized these conferences. They're called NATCONs, the National Conservative Conferences. Uh, there have been two of them. Um, there's going to be a third one this year. And they bring in all these different types of conservatives, even some kind of uh, anti woke liberals. And it's about forging a new coalition on the right. They're anti-globalist, okay? So they're nationalist. They tend to be anti-immigration. In their statement of principles that they released recently, they say that immigration moratorium ought to be considered. So that just a complete ban on immigration to the United States, very similar to the one that was imposed in the 1920s. They tend to be willing to use government to go after the corporations and to go after big tech. That's kind of part of their agenda. But there's a split in this new right, and that's over foreign affairs. If you're a nationalist, do you think you would identify with, say, the nation of Ukraine, which has been invaded without provocation by a much larger nation, Russia? Or if you're a nationalist, do you think that you would come to the defense of tiny Taiwan, which is under threat from a much larger nation? Uh, China. But within this new right, there are divergences over how far America should go to support and defend democratic nations under threat. 
that's a potential, I think, breaking point for this new right coalition because they haven't really worked out that difference. Mm. And so you see that play out, for example, on Tucker Carlson, where you will see anti-war leftists mm. appearing on his show and, yeah. and having having that debate about the war there. Yes. And he's very much on the anti-intervention, anti-engagement side. But there are others in the, this national conservative movement who will be more supportive of just you know, sending aid to Ukraine and not, not necessarily getting involved directly ourselves. There's another kind of contradiction in the new right, which is another major concern of theirs is, as I said, restoring America's industrial capacity, our manufacturing base, pouring money into research and technology, you know, learning how to fabricate semiconductors chips here in the United States, as opposed to relying on factories elsewhere in the globe. However, that agenda kind of cuts against their opposition to immigration, um, because <laughs> to build these plants, a lot of the expertise is overseas. So, you know, you would need to bring in the experts, and you'd also need to bring in labor to fulfill these dreams, which I tend to agree with, of kind of revitalizing American industry, and especially devoting resources to our defense industrial base so that we don't have to rely on our enemies for supplies in the case of an emergency. And then there's, of course, you know, the X factor that's emerged in recent years of inflation. Right. So the new right tends to be much more ambivalent or even supportive of government spending. But in an inflationary environment, you know, the more you spend, the less it's worth. So that is another potential roadblock for them. But they definitely have a lot of the energy on the right today. There's no question that a lot of the debates are taking place on their field, right? Uh, yeah. As opposed to those conservatives who still support uh, free markets, limited government, individualism. Mm -hmm. And before I want to close by just talking about where conservatism goes from here, but before we get to that, the major criticism that I have seen of the new right is that it's flirting with fascism, that in its admiration for strong men, its rejection of classic liberalism. In your view, how much weight does such criticisms hold? I tend to avoid the debate over fascism simply because to me as a historian, fascism is a very particular political movement, very distinctive also very aggressive, you know, in terms of its foreign policy, that is not something you associate with the Trump movement, right? The opposite. Mm. So I tend not to use that term. I do think, though, that there are parts of the new right that are explicitly illiberal. I mean, that's what they say. They're, in some cases, they say they are post-liberal. That's not liberal in the modern sense of progressivism, right? Of, you know, using government to improve equality, or even now we've moved on to using government to ensure equity, right? They mean liberal in the classical liberal sense of constitutionalism, limited government, individual rights, all these things that I was just discussing. Um, and that, once you make that move, then you're entirely open to strongmen, right? You're entirely open to have, oh, we should have a Caesar, right? Or we, we should, you know, we should disobey the Supreme Court. I think J.D. Vance uh, has said that the Supreme Court says that the next Republican president can't fire all the government employees at once. So once you abandon the traditions of individual freedoms, liberties, and constitutional due process that is embodied in America's founding charters, well, you're open to anything. 
And you'll be much more sympathetic to a figure like, say, Viktor Orban. You'll be more sympathetic to a figure like Vladimir Putin. That those are people who are, oh, well, you know, they're fighting the good fight, right? They don't care about what Patrick Buchanan once called the niceties of liberal democracy, right? Those things like, you know, due process <laughs> or freedom of speech, you know. This is a dangerous and worrisome place that parts of the new right are headed in. And you have discussions about, you know, neo-reactionary movements or uh, monarchist, you know, we should have a king in America. Are people um, saying that? As I think one of the thinkers on, associated with the new right, this guy named Curtis Yarvin, uh, he's kind of yeah, a monarchist. Yeah, it's absurd at one level. And this is why I, I try to distinguish between the intellectuals and the politics. Now, they're related. And, you know, my whole book is kind of about this relationship between ideas and action. But when you get in deep in the weeds in some of this new right stuff, it's just so beyond the mainstream. You know, there's a, another group of the new right is the associated with the post-liberal Catholic thinkers, right? These are Catholics who reject modernity in toto, reject a lot of the church's accommodations with American reality and the modern world, as exemplified in the Second Vatican Council in the mid-20th century. And, you know, somehow they think that America is going to turn into a kind of a Catholic state where, you know, it just boggles the mind. First of all, America is a Protestant country. You know, there's a big difference there. You know, we've, we had the wars of religion over that. And secondly, most American Catholics are cradle Catholics and not exactly devout, right? So their first job should be to revitalize their church before they think about taking over America. So this is the problem with the new right, is that some of its insights are useful, I think, and some of their critiques of beltway conservatism are valuable, but they get carried away very, very quickly. And it's not like Donald Trump is paying much attention to them, right? And Donald Trump is interested in Donald Trump and what is in front of him and what his very shrewd political instincts are telling him is necessary to achieve his next goal. And for Trump, the next goal is always the next five minutes. There's no long-term goal, right? So I think all of these caveats and qualifications need to be made when we discuss the new right and its relationship to the, the Trump mm -hmm. Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Well, just to close, let's talk about where American conservatism goes from here. I want to ask you, George Will's classic question, what should it seek to conserve? Yeah. Well, I'm a strong believer that American conservatism seeks to conserve the uh, legacy of the American founding, right? What makes America unique? Well, it was the fact that we had a very specific founding. We are in some ways a constructed nation. We have the Declaration of Independence, and then we have the Constitution in 1787. And it's that political tradition that American conservatism ought to defend the constitutional order and the intent of the founders many hundred years ago. You know, this is not a problem, but this is one attitude or version of conservatism that's on offer. There are other conservatives in the United States who take a much more European view of their project. You know, American conservatism, in my view, is defending these institutions, right? The Constitution, the principles of the Declaration and the Federalist Papers. In the European context, conservatism has tended to rally around institutions like the monarchy 
or the established church or the aristocracy, right? The nobility. Well, in America, we have none of those things. So we have to think about, well, what are we trying to conserve? And that is, I think, the vision of the founding, right? But there are other conservatives or people on the right who are much more libertarian, right? They have a much more economic view. So being an American conservative and focusing on the American political tradition, I think, is unique to us, first of all, but also is distinct from some of the other varieties of the American right. Do you feel hopeful about the future? I actually do. I have found in recent weeks, my mind turning again to the thought the system is working. You know, one lesson from the January 6th hearings into what happened on Capitol Hill that day and the lead up to it after the election in 2020 is that President Trump's plans to overturn the election failed. And they failed because of several veto points within our own government, including judges that he appointed, uh, including officials within his administration, including his own vice president. And that gave me hope. While I also know that it's a controversial position, I do think the uh, Supreme Court decision overturning the precedent of Roe v. Wade is cause for hope from an American conservative standpoint, simply because, one, restoring a strict constructionist view of the Constitution is a generational goal of the American right and of the American conservative movement. And two, I think if the justices had not done what they did, you would have actually had a splintering of the American right. And you would have had a movement toward those voices on the new right who are convinced that the Constitution is not worthy of defense, who think that the system is so corrupted that revolutionary or radical means need to be adopted to overturn it. Um, and so in a way, despite all the controversies associated with what has happened at the Supreme Court, it may be a strengthening of the American right in the sense that it will prevent people from turning even more radical and extreme than it might have been had the decision gone the other way. Mm. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your book. I learned so much. It's one of those books I will be rereading because there's just so much information and history and context there. And thank you for coming on to talk about it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 